This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. So, um, we are really glad all of you are here. Some of you are here because there's no place else you can imagine being. This is where you go on Easter, and after this you're going to go to Grandma's for dinner or lunch or something. I understand that. Others of you are here because you have a drug problem. Somebody drug you here. (laughs) We we also understand that. We know that that happens sometimes. And uh, we're still glad that you're here, and we hope that by the time we're done, you won't be quite so resentful that they drug you here. Whatever the reason you're here, though, um, I'm going to suggest that everyone has a few things in common. In fact, take a second, maybe look around you, see if you can maybe lock eyes with someone that you don't know. Go ahead. It's not awkward at all. (laughs) So, as you look at them and you realize that there's not much that you know about them, perhaps nothing, but there are a few things that I promise you know about them and they know about you. And one of them is that whoever you were just looking at, they have hopes. They have dreams. There are certain things that they're hoping will be true in their lives in the future. I know this because all people are like that. We all have hopes and dreams. The problem is that sometimes the way life works out, those hopes and dreams don't actually happen the way we thought. And and when that happens to us, when those things that we have been hoping for or dreaming about don't occur, it creates a sense of pain. You know that pain. We all do. We we have this yearning. Um, In fact, this example, there was a a wife who was um, surprisingly disappointed with her husband's self. And, and, and so she wanted to get a little bit of help, and, and she thought perhaps she would write tech support. Uh, so I just thought I'd read you her message to uh, tech support. Dear tech support, last year I upgraded from boyfriend 5.0 to husband 1.0. I noticed a distinct slowdown in overall system performance, <laughs> particularly in the flower and jewelry applications. They used to work flawlessly under Boyfriend 5.0. In addition, Husband 1.0 has uninstalled many other valuable programs, such as Romance 9.5, Personal Attention 6.5, and then it also installed some undesirable programs, such as NFL (laughs) 5.0, NBA 3.0, and Golf Clubs 4.1. Conversation 8.0 will not run no matter what I do. House cleaning cleaning 2.6 simply crashes the entire system. I have tried running nagging 5.3 to fix these problems, but it doesn't work. What can I do? Signed, desperate. So tech support responded. In a month, of course, because it's tech support. Dear Desperate, first keep in mind that Boyfriend 5.0 is an entertainment package, while Husband 1.0 is an operating system. Please enter the command http colon I thought you loved me dot html and try to download Tears 2.6 and don't forget to install the Guilt 3.0 upgrade. 
If that application works as it's designed, Husband 1.0 should then automatically run the application's Jewelry 2.0 and Flowers 3.5. <laughs> but remember, overuse of the above application can cause Husband 1.0 to default to Grumpy Silence 2.5, <laughs> or worse, Beer 6.1. Beer 6.1 is a very bad program that will download a virus called Snoring Loudly and it down downloads wave files. Whatever you do, do not install Mother-in-Law 1.0. <laughs> it runs a virus in the background that will crash your entire system. Also, do not attempt to reinstall Boyfriend 5.0. These are unsupported applications and will crash Husband 1.0. In summary, Husband 1.0 is a great program, but it does have limited memory, and it cannot, and it cannot learn new applications quickly. <laughs> you might consider buying additional software to improve memory and performance. We recommend Food 3.0 and Hot Lingerie 7.7. <laughs> Thank you, tech support. So the truth is, we, we laugh because we all know some of these disappointments. The expectations that we were almost completely unaware of until they were dashed. It's important for us today on this day, Easter, to acknowledge a few things about hope. One is that the entire Easter story is a story of hope. But it's not hope the way that we often think of hope. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about general optimism a positive outlook. Just thinking, you know, the odds have got to be in my favor somehow. Somebody's got to win the game. Remember the throwing the things in carnival games? You're throwing thinking, well, somebody's got to win. No, they don't. Hope, when the Bible talks about hope, is not just optimism. It's actually, the, the scriptures say, an assurance of things that you just can't see. Now, in the last few weeks, we've been in a series based on the movie and the book, A Case for Christ. The book was written by Lee Strobel. And uh, now it's just, just in the past week, it's come out in movie form. And uh, it's a story about a, a, a Chicago Tribune legal journalist whose wife became a believer in Jesus. Lee's response, I understand, because when I trusted Christ as a middle schooler, my family thought that I'd been sucked into a cult. Lee's response is the same. And he decides to use his uh, legal and journalistic acumen to study and research the resurrection and to disprove it once and for all. His hope was that he would disprove it, his wife would change her mind, and he would get her back. He was afraid of losing her to this cult. So we've been talking a little bit about this process of examining the case for Christ. The first week we talked a little bit about reasons why people don't believe. If you're here today and you are not a believer in Jesus, you're here for the lunch that comes afterwards. We totally understand. Many of us were like that. We're glad that you're here. We're not offended by the fact that you don't believe yet or that you don't intend to believe at all. It makes perfect sense. We talked just two weeks ago about several reasons why people don't believe. And we won't rehearse those today, but they are available on our website and on our Facebook page. You can go check those out. Last week, we talked a little bit about reasons why we can and should believe. 
as we examine the evidence, the historical evidence that surrounds the event that we call resurrection. What we learned is there is some significant objective historical truth connected to whatever this thing is and whatever happened. Well, today I want to just look at three, three points, all, pointing, all under a heading, this idea of faith in Jesus and his resurrection. There are some very unique, very unique uh, properties connected with faith in Jesus. And, and I just want to be honest about those today as we celebrate the resurrection. You see, the first thing we're going to learn about faith in Jesus is that faith is impossible. Now, you're like, whoa, wait, 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 what are, you, what are you getting at? Well, if you have your Bible, open it up to John 20. If you'd like to follow along, there's uh, a blue hardcover Bible probably in the chair pocket in front of you. Or if, you if, if you're like me, when I first came to faith, I didn't have a clue where John was. I kept looking around for a guy named John. No problem, we're going to project it right up here. What we're going to look at is the very story that the kids portrayed for us this morning. I want to show you that the first property about faith, if you have struggled with this, or if you love someone who struggles with this, the first property is simply this. Faith is impossible, at least in the sense that you and I think of things being possible or impossible. I'll show you what I mean. Starting in John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple and the one who Jesus loved. And she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Now, this is a little perplexing. It should be perplexing to all of us. After all, Mary was one of Jesus' followers. And yet, she is, she is caught off guard. She's stunned by the fact that his tomb is empty. There is really no good excuse for this. Jesus taught over and over and over again that this is what would happen. Some examples in Mark 8. And then he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That didn't really go well for Peter, but... The point is simply this. Jesus talked openly. The very next chapter, we read this again. Verse 31, Mark 9. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask. A chapter later in Mark, we see it again. And he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He had been saying this was going to happen. In fact, he was so clear about it that even the people who were his enemies knew that he had said it. In Matthew 27, we read this. And the next day, this is after the crucifixion. And the next day, the one, one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember while he was still alive that that deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. Pretty ironic, isn't it? that the enemies remembered what Jesus said, but none of his followers did. They are totally baffled by what's just happened. And I think there's a reason for that. You see, people tend to think that 
the folks that lived in ancient times, we, it's really easy for us to think they were stupid, that they were gullible. But the truth is, many of those guys figured out stuff without computers that we still have trouble understanding with a computer. They were brilliant in their own right. Oh, sure, they had some, some uh, things that were mysterious to them, and they had some kind of odd beliefs and odd practices when we look at it from our perspective. But the truth of the matter is, they were people just like us. And in this day and age, in the day, in the, in the era that Jesus died and rose again, almost no one was inclined to believe in resurrection. Greeks and Jews, they were, I mean, Greeks and Romans, they were all under the impression that the body was kind of evil and weak. All of our weaknesses came from our body, and all of the good and strong stuff came from our spirit. And so from their perspective, there would be no good reason that a god would ever want to raise a body. The body is the problem to them. Now, Jews, they tended to see creation as a good thing, including bodies, a gift from God. And they even believed in a resurrection, but their idea of a resurrection was someday, way off in the future, kind of God would restart everything, not that individuals would get up and keep walking again. You see, they had a presupposition. They were not objective, including the disciples. Regardless of what Jesus said, their inclination was not to believe that people who had been crucified could get up and walk out. Now, today, we're kind of like that, aren't we? If we're honest, whether you're a believer or not, it is not our instinct to believe that such things would happen. It's just not our experience. Now, when a judge has a case that comes before him in his courtroom, and the judge has an interest in the outcome of the case, perhaps he's invested in a company that's now being represented before him, do we allow that judge to go ahead and preside over that case? No. We expect him to recuse himself. Why? Because he can't be objective. See, that idea of being objective, it's clear in our minds when it has to do with business and law. But I think we need to apply it to issues of faith as well. The truth is, the people in this story in the Gospels, they were not objective. They had a predisposition. And as we listen to this story, as people talk to you about the resurrection of Jesus, can, can I just say, you're probably not objective either. You are inclined to believe that it makes a nice story. But somehow it didn't really, really happen because dead people don't come back to life. Well, if you're here today and you're not convinced that all this stuff about Jesus is true. I can respect that. And if you say, well, I have some serious misgivings and doubts, I can respect that. I would like to challenge you that the very first step in this process is for you to be honest about your presuppositions. The truth is, we should say, hey, I don't believe it, but then again, <laughs> I don't want to believe it. This would be a real change for me. I'm inclined to find it hard to believe that people that are dead get up and walk. And what do we do? We can't really recuse ourselves from a decision like this. But you can do one thing, and that is, let me encourage you to doubt your doubts. 
Don't have to make a decision. It starts by being open enough to say, you know, I don't believe this, but then again, I wasn't raised to believe this. It's beyond anything I've experienced. And I guess I have to admit, I could be wrong. Maybe the reason I haven't seen this is because I'm already inclined to not believe it. Could it be possible that I've missed something? That's the beginning of the openness that's required. And consider this. If you are mistaken, if this is true and you simply have overlooked it because of your own personal presuppositions, I want to remind you that what we're talking about is not simply an act where there's some phrase that a person says and dead people get up all the time. It doesn't happen all the time. We're talking about it happening to Jesus Christ. Jesus is a person. If he was dead, and if he is now alive, maybe the conversation needs to begin with him. Okay, so, Jesus... Silly, I don't know. I could be talking to the ceiling. But, you know, I'm trying to be open. And so, if you are there, and if this really happened, you're going to have to show me. Because left to myself, you and I both know this stuff doesn't happen. So if you're there, you're going to have to show me. You see, when we say faith is impossible, what we mean is it's impossible by ourselves. We don't cook up faith inside just from nowhere. It's not that some people are wired for faith more than others. That's not the case. That's not the kind of faith the Bible talks about. Faith is something that needs outside input. That's all. Simply put, if there is a God, and if he's as smart as he would have to be to do what he did, no surprise that you and I are going to have trouble understanding what he has to say unless he makes it simple. And so faith is impossible unless we get outside help. If we are left to a closed system, if you're going to just say, I'm going to figure this out on my own, and, 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 and if on my own with no other input, the decision I come to is it's not true, then that's going to be it. I just caution you. Doubt your doubts. Be open to a possibility. The second dynamic about faith, not just that faith is in Christ is impossible, but here, faith in Christ is rational. Now, you're thinking, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> These things don't go together, and this is why we're talking about it. In fact, this is why the resurrection is... It happened and is constructed, the stories are constructed the way it did. Because both of these things are true. Let's, let's keep reading in John 20. <laughs> you almost don't have to read it, we just watched it. We've got some budding actresses and actors here, by the way, right? You saw that. Okay. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You've got to pause there. Why? Why is that even recorded? It, it has no impact on the story, really. In fact, the only reason for it to be recorded is if that's actually what happened. And then it's simply an observation. He bent over and he looked in, in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, and he went in first straight into the tomb. 
He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in, lying in its place, separate from the linen. Okay, this is a little arcane. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about ancient burial practices, but what's funny is, to be honest, most of us don't know anything about current burial practices. We don't want to know. Oh, no, 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 right? We just, we just, we, we walk past the coffin, right? I mean, it's just not a subject that we're very informed about. But in this day, it was customary to take the dead body and to wash it, and instead of dressing it up in a suit, they would wrap it in linens. And as they would wrap it, they would often put spices and other things in along with it, and they would wrap this body, leaving the face or the head exposed. They would cover the face, and we have some things in our culture, like, you know, whatever, whether it's coins over the eyes or whatever. But this was their, this was their custom. So we hear that these two disciples who get this report, they run to the tomb. Why? Because they're having trouble believing it. Why? Because they don't believe in resurrection any more than you and I do. By the way, it is obvious to you, I think, that later these disciples became believers in the resurrection. They started as people that were inclined not to believe it. They ended being champions of this story. What happened to them? If they're intelligent people, they're people just like us, something occurred. Something happened that took them from not believing to believing. I wonder what that is. And I wonder if that same evidence that swayed them might sway us. You see, it is rational to believe that this account is, this account is accurate and true. Apart from, let's say, forget the, the, the rising from the dead part. This is an accurate story, even the whole point about who got there first. Why include that, except it just sounds like something that actually happened. You see, there are reasons why a, a thinking person is led to believe this is true. The first one we actually talked about last week a little bit, that's the, the quality of the first witnesses. Pastor Jim mentioned that the first witness to this resurrection was actually a woman, Mary. What you don't understand is that in that culture, in that patriarchal culture, a woman's testimony was worthless, sometimes worse than worthless. We're offended by that. We should be. But in that day and age, people, I mean, if, if you wanted to, to show something that really happened, if you were making up a story, you would never write the story that the first person that saw this and reported it was a woman. That would tank your story. Terrible witness. In fact, the only reason anybody writing this whole story down would ever admit to that is if it were true. So, the next thing is that not only was the, the quality of that first witness an issue, but also the things that Peter saw when he got into that tomb. He stuck his head in that tomb and something about what he saw began to change his mind. What did he see? All we read about were linen and napkins and stuff. Now, put, your, put yourself in Peter's mind. What has happened here? The body is obviously missing. Now, if other disciples came and carried away the body, it's almost unthinkable that they would unwrap him and carry him away naked. 
they would carry the entire body wrapped in the linens. Then I would see nothing here but cold, empty stone. And yet that's not what I find. I find linens here and in the napkin. In fact, uh, the NIV doesn't quite capture this, but many contemporary uh, translations mention the fact that the napkin was actually kind of folded or rolled, kind of the way it was normally stored. It was actually kind of put, a, put away. Now, if Jesus had passed out during the crucifixion, we talked about this last week, if he just kind of swooned, he passed out, and then he was laying in this nice, cool, comfortable stone tomb, and, and he woke up, and he had the strength and the wherewithal to get up and, and leave himself, then what would you expect? You'd, you'd have these linens just torn and scattered everywhere. They would just be in a pile. I doubt in that state he would stop and then pick them all up and fold them nicely and pile them there like your mom was going to make your bed. And if enemies came in to steal this body, again, not only would they have not folded and put these linens away nicely, this body would be displayed somewhere. And what's ironic is, as this story of his resurrection started to spread across Palestine, we are less than six miles. Most of this story happens less than six miles from the place that he was buried. Honestly, if someone in your neighborhood was saying that, that they buried their dog and then the dog raised from the dead, and, 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 and they were insisting on it to be true, Someone in your neighborhood, you would say, you know what, I'm going to settle this once and for all. And you'd walk down to their house, and you would dig up the thing and say, uh, excuse me, is this the dog that supposedly rose from the dead? And yet, no one did. No one marched to the tomb and said, uh, excuse me, the body's still here. Well, maybe they were confused and went to the wrong tomb. Oh, well, the, these women were startled, but Joseph of Arimathea was a, was a well-known community leader, everyone would have known where his tomb, it wouldn't have, you wouldn't have mixed up his tomb with someone else's. No, I'm going to suggest that if you marched yourself down to your neighbor and said, all this talk about your German shepherd rising from the dead is ridiculous and it's got to stop, and I'm going to the backyard and there's the German shepherd waving, wagging his tail, you'd be, uh, uh. And suddenly you'd have to say, okay, what, have, what am I missing here? You see, Peter stuck his head in and he knew that what he saw in that tomb, just the facts, didn't make sense unless something that he thought could not happen had indeed happened. This is the realization that Lee Strobel comes to in, this, in his book and in his story when after months and months of trying to prove that this is just a bunch of hooey and it makes no sense, and after, after observing the evidence as it piled up in favor of a resurrection, he has to admit what he's not wanted to admit. Here's a clip from the movie.
Isn't it interesting that God does not provide proof so that you have no choice but to believe? That's not the resurrection story. But God causes us to have to confront our presuppositions. He says, are you sure that I couldn't have done this? And then as we turn our minds and focus on the facts, on the evidence that surround the resurrection, this historical act better recorded than any ancient historic fact that exists. Against its will, our culture still marks time by it. And when we begin to look at the evidence, it's overwhelming. To force us? No. Instead, he invites us to believe. I was there once. If you are there now, I know what this feels like. Uh, uh, something is happening. I am feeling drawn. I am feeling conviction, but I don't want to buy into some thing. And yet, what do I know what it is if I haven't believed yet? Oh, what is happening? And what will happen after? Shh. There's one last point. Although faith is impossible, God can meet us there. And faith is rational because it's not simply impossible, but it, it's, it makes sense. We use our minds to believe. Lastly, faith is personal. Listen to the rest of this story. Perhaps you are in this story. Starting in verse 18, or verse 11 of now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she says, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? What is it that you're looking for? This is what Jesus does. This is perhaps what you're feeling even at this moment. As you raise these objections in your heart and mind, he is asking through his spirit a question. What is it that you're looking for then? Why are you so upset? What is it that you're afraid of, he says. Why are you crying? Who is it? that you're looking for. And thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Isn't that cute? <laughs> She's going to throw him, throw his dead body over her shoulder and just march him back. You know, Mary's devotion to Jesus is so touching, but it's so inadequate. She's not looking for the Jesus that really is. She's looking, in Luke 24, it says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? She's expecting a dead Jesus. That's not the Lord that she said she was following. Touching, but inadequate. Finally, he breaks through for Mary. All of her preconceived ideas, all of her resistance, all of her pain, blocking, obscuring, seeing him. What is it that actually gets through? 
Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out, Teacher. One word. Her name. See, faith in Christ has to be personal. You're not buying into a set of principles. You're not adopting a set of values. Religions are like that, but not this. If Jesus did die, if he did rise again, then it is all only about him. And what he says is he knows our name. It's exactly what Jesus said he would do. In John 10, he describes, well, you just listen. Imagine, this is long before this all happens. He says in John 10, The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls each of his own sheep by name. I'm going to suggest that that's what you're experiencing even now. The reason it's so devastating, so powerful, so moving, so unlike anything else is that he's actually reaching to you personally because he loves and values you. He breaks through with a personal touch. In fact, at the core of every important relationship is a personal touch. You might be sure that your spouse or loved one loves you. And if pressed, you could probably list all kinds of facts and evidence to that point. Well, she cooks for me every time I need it. She, she knows my favorite thing. She picks out, she helps me find the missing sock. Or she, she whatever. And you could list all these things, but that's not why you know you're loved. Those things are evidence. You would sort of expect those things to happen in a loving relationship, but that's not why you know. You know you are loved because there is a personal connection between you two. Jesus wants a personal connection with you. Why? What does he want? Now you sound like Mary. He doesn't need anything from you. He wants something for you. You see, God is redeeming the world back to himself. But just because he's redeeming all of creation, it doesn't preclude him coming after you personally. Just heard about a little boy who house was on fire. He got out, and then he ran back in to get the ones that he loved. Personal connection. That personal connection will cause us to be willing to sacrifice almost anything. That's what Jesus and the cross shows. To wrap up, remember how Mary responded. She tried to just clamp onto him, just to embrace him and rub. No wonder she lost him once. She doesn't want to lose him again. I'm going to just tie myself to you. I'm never going to leave you. And he says, whoa, whoa, stop, stop, stop. 
You don't have to hang on to me. I'm not going to get lost again. Which is what he means when he says, I'm ascending. You see, when I ascend to the Father, then I'm going to have access to you and you're going to have access to me no matter where you are. Like, we're familiar, you know, we understand satellites. You get up that high, then you get a signal. that This is way beyond satellites. He's with the Father, which means every person who prays, speaks his name, has access. By the way, he says, instead of hanging on to me, instead of hanging on to me, instead of clinging to me, go instead to my brothers and tell them. Don't you hear something funny? In, 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 in a very important way, Mary is the, really, the very first New Testament Christian. She's the first one that got the whole message and responded in the way that disciples respond. She knew that he was alive. He made a personal touch into her heart and life. And then she received this commission. Go tell somebody. Let me tell you something. I'm going to go out on a limb here. No matter how you feel about the possibility of resurrection, if you actually experienced resurrection, you would have a hard time not telling somebody. And that includes this morning. See, Jesus didn't rise from the dead so that it would be a neat ending to what would otherwise would be a tragic story. He rose because death could not keep him. And now, that resurrection life, he wants to give to you. What would stop you from putting your faith in Jesus today? Ah, God, I... If you want me to do this, I could, I'm going to need an assist here. I need help. This is kind of beyond me. And yet, i got to admit, this evidence just keeps piling up and piling up. You are calling me. You do want me. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Consider this. He is calling to you. He is reaching to you. He sent a woman, not a man. He sent a, 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 formal, a former, uh, somebody involved in recovery. She had some mental stability issues early in her life. He chose her, not some pillar of the community. He didn't send first one of those apostles. He chose one of the support team. Do you know why he did all that? Because he says, I can redeem and then use anyone. Anyone. You don't understand. You don't know how I failed. He says, I know exactly how you failed. I already paid for that. And now he's waiting for you. This is the hope that every person is hoping for. That regardless of how things turn out in this life, we have a hope that transcends this life. And he's just waiting for you. What would stop you from trusting Jesus as your Savior? Perhaps you want to pray something like this. Jesus, not signing on to a church, to a religion, not making any promises here. 
I'm just responding to the facts. There is a great deal of evidence to show that you actually did rise from the dead. Not only do I believe that's possible, I'm beginning to think that is truth. But alongside that, I feel you're drawing me. For some reason, this compels me, and I feel like I'm supposed to respond. If that is you, then I believe in you. I will trust in you. Lord Jesus, you died for my sins. You rose for my victory. I believe. If you have prayed that prayer just now for the first time, I'm going to ask you to step out and take a risk. I want you to, in just a second to raise your hand and let me know. I don't get any extra points for this. I want you to have settled it in your mind. And then I want to pray for you. And so if this makes sense to you, and today is the day, say, I now believe that this is true for me. I'm going to ask you to slip your hand up. Let's put it right up. Anybody at all? So, two things are possible. Everyone here has already put their faith in Christ, or you are still wrestling. You wrestle on, because he will not quit. But for those of us who are believers, do you see what Jesus did? Who he sent first? What is it that you think will disqualify you from serving him? <laughs> Mary would have been at the bottom of everybody's list. She's the first one sent. He can use you if you will let him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, how good you are to come to redeem us through your death on the cross and then to let us be witnesses too of your power. Death could not keep you in the ground. Grave could not sustain, could not resist. You rose on that third day. It's not just good news for you. It's good news for every person who puts their faith in you. The life that is yours, you have given to us. You took our sin on yourself. You give your life to us through faith. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your death for us. We glorify you. We worship you. May we live lives filled with life that is eternal. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.